Trumpism could kind of easily dissipate into kind of Republican politics as usual, plus being mean. Uh, and that, the, that the, you know, the thing that was worth emulating about Trump is that he was a personally unpleasant man, <laughs> not any of the other stuff. Uh, and I guess I would say it's the other stuff, uh, or at least the promise of the other stuff. That's the important thing. You're listening to The Popular Show with me, James A. Smith, as ever. And here he is, the cutie from Newfie, David Stavik. It's great to be here in Newfoundland right now. There are whales jumping in the bay. There are herring swimming. And we are eating fish, as we always do up here in Newfoundland. I'm a Pennsylvanian in the, the upper most part of Appalachia, Newfoundland. Thank you for Have having you. me. <laughs> We've got a really exciting guests uh, today. We have Arthur Bloom, who is the editor of American Conservative Magazine Online. He's the host of American Conservatives podcast, which is called Right Now. Uh, and uh, we're going to be covering a lot of very interesting stuff. How the hell are you, Arthur? I'm doing good. How are you? Yeah, very much all right. It's a beautiful um, day here in Washington, D.C. You're a Washington man? Uh, I'm an Arlington man, which is probably worse. <laughs> that, that, there's yeah. a, a really unique difference there. And it, the difference has really changed over time. Um, it used to be, and this is before some Supreme, Supreme Court decisions came down, uh, that people would not move into Washington because they had guns. You know, or right. they, you know absolutely. And, uh, you know, as, as I'm not a gun owner now because I live in Canada, where it's very difficult to own guns, but I did own guns when I was in Virginia. And it's one of those things where you realize you're like, these lines are very arbitrary because everyone works at the same place, but one half the people can own a gun and half people can't own a gun. And that's, well, yeah. Amazing. And as an Arlingtonian, I can kind of burnish my lefty bona fides. I, yeah. I went to a very progressive uh, high school, public high school in Arlington right. where we used to, to vote for everything. And yeah, Including voting on like budgets for teachers and stuff. Yeah. So uh, yeah, direct democracy. Yeah, I'm all about it. Yeah, which is um, funny because no one else in Washington is. So I mean, that's yeah. that's interesting. It's like a it's a it's a expectation of populism that is being set that isn't being achieved in in the government actually. No, I guess not. Uh, Ralph Nader is doing his best. So Ralph Nader, I will tell you a funny story about Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader is a friend. And uh, Ralph and I, Ralph and I sued a uh, Mariel Bowser uh, for a selling off of a library to a uh, developer. As you know, Washington D.C. is like full of developer money, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And uh, we we were involved in a very fun lawsuit uh, against a developer, which is a kind of a populist move. Um, it's in the West End. If you know the, where the Trader Joe's is, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, Foggy Bottom, yeah, exactly. So, but it's but it's fascinating because the interesting thing about Ralph Nader is that Ralph Nader says that um, Al Gore apologized to him about the 2000 election. Funny story. Yeah. Why did he say that? Because he said that the Democrats had demagogued him, and he said that the 
problem was is that they didn't turn out voters in Florida. He blamed it on Bill Clinton, not Ralph mm-hmm. Nader. Right. Because Bill had not turned out his voters in Florida. Go figure. Yeah. yeah the, right? the, the Dems, you know, they're not actually earning their, their voters like they, Listen, like they should be. When in doubt, blame the Clintons. <laughs> right. Yeah. The Crickland crime family. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a fully anti-Clinton crime family podcast. So <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Uh, so we want to cover um, how you see the project of um, this uh, this magazine, American Conservative, where you see the right in America going after uh, the the 2020 election, and we want to get into uh, this this really brilliant uh, series of articles that you've been publishing in the magazine on nonprofits. We're always interested in this show uh, in the topics that the left should be interested in and should be uh, critiquing, but that the right is paying more attention to and doing a better job on. So that's part of what we've invited you on for. But uh, before we get into all that, the bigger story this week is that um, uh, the lab leak, we're, we're now you know allowed to think that uh, COVID-19 leaked from the lab in Wuhan. Right. Uh, you know, people have been kicked off social media for, for saying this, uh, you know, kind of branded as um, cranks or conspiracy theorists. Uh, and now Joe Biden, you know, has uh, has countenanced it in, in a speech and, and it kind of switches around. Um, I've kind of got a, a view on, on this from a British perspective. But what was your take on this, Arthur? Um. Well, okay. Uh, I kind of had this suspicion for a very long time. It, it, there were people that were talking about it from, you know, my lunatic corner of the internet for uh, for a long, long time. Uh, now it's become acceptable. The um, and the, I, I sort of have like a dipstick test for things like this. Like um, I've got all these friends that I grew up with who buy in larger lips because I'm from Arlington, and I, I like test these things. Like, hey. You know, this 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 probably came from a lab, right? Oh, you're crazy. Uh, and, and then, you know, slowly, you know, you, I, I do that with all sorts of things. And like, usually I find that I'm crazy. Uh, and, and this was one um, where there really was like an incredible break between, you know, you were presumptively a nut job if you thought that this was, you know, a possibility. And um, it, 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 it broke, it, it had to break through in a way that other things didn't. Um, and another part of this is it's not just uh, how the Washington Post chooses to cover something. Um, the, these fact checks do have a pretty substantial impact on how widely your news is distributed. And so um, if, if, for instance, the, the, the claim that it came from a lab in Wuhan um, was, was rated as false by a number of these fact checkers. And, and so uh, that's not just like me saying you're wrong. Uh, that false rating can cause your news to be deranked from Facebook. Your people are going to see it. Now uh, I'm going to get, I'm going to get to, I'm going to push you on that a little bit because sure. you were at the daily caller. The yeah. daily caller foundation is part of that fact check. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so what not to, I mean, you're not there now, so I'm not going to like, you like, you have to answer for everything, but like what role does conservative media have in allowing this to happen? Because well, I, I actually I actually believe that it's quite likely in 
in, in a like a very innocuous way that something like this could happen. Like, you know, anyone from Port Dietrich or wherever would understand this. It's like this has happened before. There well, was H one N one, et cetera, et cetera. Did Mueller rate the the lab leak claim as false? I don't think so. Um, yeah, it, it, and so um, there, there's. Well, a, you understand what I'm saying is that like these these things like it's like when you're part of these institutions, it's like complicated, right? Sure. Yeah, and, and I think I know what you're asking, and it, it's a good question. And um, I appreciate you answering it. Actually, <laughs> I, I guess what I'd say is. Um, the alternative is, I think Facebook is going to have some sort of fact-checking thing. Yeah. And if they're, they either do it in-house or they outsource it to other people, Facebook has chosen to outsource it to other people. If they do it in-house, I think as a conservative, we can assume that the people doing those fact-checks are not yeah. conservatives. And so it's better to have a seat at the table than not to. There yeah, are of course, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm certainly no defender of Facebook, but um, I, I think <laughs> no one here is believe me, brother. <laughs> yeah, and um, the, the way um, I've been very critical of how, like, the tech industry has been buying, you know, influence and whatnot in the conservative movement. We've kind of talked about it. It was it was a taboo subject until, you know, maybe a year or two ago. And um, as far as the caller is concerned, I do. Th I would say this, but I, I do think uh, it, it is a. Um, less compromising kind of relationship than some of the others. Yeah. Uh, and that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, the caller has run critical pieces about Facebook, for one thing. Uh, for another, um, so they, their fact checker is, is different than some of the other ones that you'll see. Uh, the key way, and I don't think I'm giving away some sort of trade secret here. You can sort of infer all no, of it. No, no, no. Um, PolitiFact, for instance, they have a five-tiered fact-checking system. You know, it's like true or mostly true or uh, mixed or or unsure or mostly false or pants on fire. And then uh, the New York, or, uh, the Washington Post has four. Uh, the Daily Callers is binary. It's just true or false. And that's because it's, it's less, um, it, there's less possibility for contention, I think. Um, so consider if um, the Daily Caller fact-checked something like Joe Biden says that, you know, that's wrong. There's a way that that causes a huge sting um, that uh, if PolitiFact did something to Trump, it wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, and so so binary kind of, and, and when you look at conservatives' complaints about the other fact-checkers, this is often one of them, like you've rated something most mostly false, and it's actually mostly true, and that's basically a value judgment. Yeah. It's to, I mean, I mean, Glenn Kessler can suck it, man. Like he, I, he's like consistently wrong. You know, I mean, it's very funny to me because I, I've like been involved in like very nuanced DC opinion making, and on certain issues, I've seen Glenn Kessler like deal with them. And you're like, the the funny thing is, and I think you know this because you're a DC creature, if you like it or not. You yeah. Know? I mean, no, you don't want to be like, like, you know, but like, you know, you have friends, you go down to Union Market, you get your, you know, you get your scrapple there or whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> they have a great, they have a great butcher there, but you go through this process and you, you see it and you're like, oh, that, that's not actually what happened. And you see it consistently and you see people like your parents or your friends, your family go through this process and you're like, 
oh yeah, this is what the Washington Post told me or the, the New York Times. Yeah, or, or one of the, I, I think they're sort of getting arrogant about their ability to like generate reality. Like it's unbelievable. The, the, um, <laughs> it's unbelievable. There's that famous Karl Rove quote about we're an empire and when we actually create reality. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I think there's, um, as an, you know, as an authoritarian, I have some sympathy for that, for that viewpoint. Uh, but th there are limits to what you can make it do, right? It just yeah. because that's sort of true, um, or it's true in a limited sense, doesn't mean you can, you know, do something like uh, remake a rock in the image of, you yeah. know, a, a Western parliamentary. Yeah. And and so, you know, the the one that that kind of threw me for a loop recently, and, and this one is like kind of surreal because, you know, you know, we're in D.C. and there's something that's supposed to be happening, but it's not happening. It was the second riot that was supposed to it was January 4th or January 6th. Yeah. And it had been warned about. Um, it, it was initially dropped, I believe, through Natasha Bertrand, who's a total deep state mouthpiece. Uh, and, and the uh, you know, there was supposed to be this other riot when, when the militias would appear, and they you know they'd make another run. Me, me, when all the FBI informants showed up with the well, like, right, the, yeah. the dumbest people from their town. Why are people on the left and the right, sort of in the mainstream? So afraid of the idea that a lab that did gain of function, you know, testing would have had a leak. Fort Dietrich does the same kind of stuff. You know, you're you're a you're a creature of, of the DMV. You understand that. You know what that is. Mm -hmm. You probably know people who work there. I mean, I'm gonna I can yeah. make that assumption. I I bet you do. I'm going to jump um, in with my British take here quickly. Um, yeah. Lord Levi-Strauss, the great French anthropologist, said that uh, every society um, bans incest, but the definition of incest is different in, in every society. <laughs> every, That's exactly every, right. Yeah. Every country's liberals <laughs> ban cranks and conspiracy theorists, but no country has exactly the same kind of definition of what that is. Yeah. So in Britain... In the Sunday Times, it is the standard kind of line that uh, it would be an incredible coincidence that the breakout of the coronavirus happened in the city with the main lab for investigating SARS uh, coronaviruses. Right. So this has long been an acceptable kind of uh, opinion. It's much like um, Naomi Wolf, who in uh, our last um, episode with uh, Katie Royfe, we were being very unkind about. But I saw she was tweeting about seeing a three-year-old on a plane having a mask put on her. And Naomi Wolf was saying, you know, this is disgusting, putting a mask on a, a, on a three-year-old. And all the kind of quote tweets and responses were, oh, I'm a parent and, and I tell my kids to do healthy things all the time. In Britain, we don't put fucking masks on a three-year-old. And, and, and uh, <laughs> the risk of yeah. coronavirus is so low for children. Uh, and the risks of, of uh, impairing their uh, respiration are so high yeah. that we, we would never do that. In psychology. So I mean, it's a great example of like one country's cranks or another country's sort of sensible opinions. Yeah, and look, I I'm still mystified as to like what exactly came over the particular set of like upper middle class people that I grew up around in the last five years. Like yeah. they've gone crazy. Yeah, mm -hmm. they they, um, they, yeah. they woke up and and they thought they were living in a spy novel, and uh, you know it, it's it's truly not. <laughs> and, and, I mean, if you watch Burn After Reading, 
you have grown up in a spinal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the interesting thing is that the banality of it. Is well, yeah, and, and actually, uh, my my folks' house is about four blocks from the home of James Jesus Angleton. So okay, I do it. Literally, I know exactly where you're from. Yeah, but at the end of the day, I I don't think this is really about. Um, any kind of like sane assessment of like what's a conspiracy theory or what's healthy yeah. and what's not. It, it, it's about authority. And um, the uh, the Wuhan lab leak, I mean, it's just starting to kind of what everybody knew yeah. that, that was paying attention is starting to be vindicated in a big way. Yeah. And there's going to be some sort of political yeah. recognition. Yeah. And we'll talk about what that means about Biden later because I, I think that's interesting. Yeah. So, and, so and, um, <laughs> the... I, I guess, though, what, what I have to say about it is, like, one of my worries is that um, I'm already kind of uh, flummoxed by the China question. I mean, I think China is a much more serious uh, threat than the Iraqi government. Um, uh, than the Iraqi government. Right. 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 Or either. Either. Or, or, yeah, either. <laughs> either. Um, I mean, or, that's, uh, that's a great point. Or I mean, Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Well, I, su- I assume that this is it. When, you know, when you've got an anti-China narrative that benefits Trump during the Trump uh, years, then liberals are against it. But as soon as Biden's in, you know, Biden's anti-China narrative is a totally different uh, uh, thing. And suddenly we embrace the idea that... Right. Uh, and the reckoning I'd like to see is not an anti-China one. It's fundamentally a, a one about the incompetence of our own government. Like, the, the, the thing... Um, we're uh, a lot of politicians have started to talk about this in terms of a Chinese cover up. And, uh, you know, I, I just sort of assume as a matter of course that China covers up things. Of like course this. they would. That's just what they do. Of course. Uh, Why wouldn't they? they if you, yeah. if you, even if you are a believer in the Chinese project, you, of course, should cover it up. Because that's what countries do. You know, the, the, the issue here, more than anything else, is that it's not that China lied. Of course they lied. Uh, mm-hmm. It's that um, this research was probably funded by the U.S. government, and what's more, uh, the approval for it could have come from two people, and one of them is Anthony Fauci. Yeah. And, and it, so you've got this guy on TV who's asking the public to make these incredible sacrifices, and he's somebody who's deeply in, implicated in like the creation of this problem in the first place. Do they actually think this is a good idea? It, it's sort of, um, I, I, that's very weird to me. Like, it, at the very least, I mean, like what Anthony Fauci needs to like fall on his sword if you have any kind of, um, you know, sense of integrity in government. Uh, he, he needs to say, I'm so sorry, I resign. And then get somebody on TV asking you to wear four masks that didn't approve, you know, this research. That's the, and, you know, if that conversation finally happens, great. I mean, I welcome the fall from grace of Anthony Fauci. They've already got the plush toys. They've got the T-shirts. They've yeah. got the, uh, the posters and whatnot. This guy's turned into a saint. And this so guy, it, this it, guy. It would be, it would be a kind of blasphemy to uh, to destroy the reputation yeah. of Anthony Fauci. This, this guy he, killed thousands of gay men. You know, I mean, like, this is the thing. Is it? This guy should have been laughed out of Washington in 1983. I hear her heart beating loud as thunder, soul is crushing. 
mean, I, I don't know what you'd make of this, but I, as a, a left-wing reader, kind of trying to pay attention to new thought on the American right, um, I'd associate uh, the stuff that you, you're doing in the online American conservative with uh, what's going on over at American Affairs as a kind of um, a sort of younger rights intelligentsia that um, has sort of seen a, a window or an opportunity in the rise of Trump uh, doesn't necessarily reflect Trumpism on the whole. Could, could you sort of describe for us like what Trump changed, like from your perspective, and what you sort of feel that um, kind of younger right wingers have maybe been liberated from in the kind of Republican tradition, or like what is the what is the project? Could you outline it for us? Well, so um, I guess. I've talked to other um, or other editors of this magazine have said in the past, you know, if, if you wanted to say things that were critical, if you were a conservative who wanted to say things that were critical of Bush or the Iraq war, you had to start your own magazine. You couldn't uh, you couldn't get published in some of the other places. And um, I, I think it's it's hard to um, it's hard to exaggerate the kind of, um, there was a way in especially how dogmas about war and, and empire were very intensely enforced in like, in an almost like menacing and coercive way, um, it, especially people coming from, you know, our like paleocon kind of part of the conservative movement. Mm -hmm. You know, if you got popular enough to be considered for confirmation, the Free Beacon would, would run a piece calling you an anti-Semite. That, that's, um, that's pretty much how it, it worked. Um, one of the, like TAC used to be a magazine that liberals would read. We were the conservative magazine that liberals would read, uh, because we were sort of, um, uh, you know, you could still feel like an enlightened, open-minded person yeah. and, and, and whatnot. Um, I, I do think that sort of drying up as a concept, libs just aren't even interested in it anymore. And at the same time, there, there's this big space on the right where there are a lot of conservatives are starting to think a lot more like us. Uh, it's it's meant that we as a magazine have to kind of think about things more differently yeah. than we have in the past. Yeah. Um, kind of my view of it is, um, I, I mean, there there are people listening to us in a way that nobody was five or five years ago. I agree. And yeah. um, but at the same time, I think you know, for instance, we had Rubio and Cotton, two senators, yeah. on the podcast recently. And these guys wouldn't have given us the time of day a couple of years ago. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, that's that's sort of gone full circle, right? You know? Well, exactly. Like, yeah. yeah. And um, and I think even people that are kind of snakes in the grass have started realizing that they need to, like, talk this way or talk yeah. like populists. And, um, you know, I wrote a piece about, like, the America First Policy Institute. And, yeah. um, you know, these are people that are arguably responsible for Trump losing the election. Uh, yeah. the, um, Larry Kudlow is, I think, the president. And he was <laughs> one of the three people who were the real driving forces to keep the, the $2,000 checks from going out, the, the yeah. second one of them. And, um, you know, he, he's just, he's the yeah. reason why the White House was so kind of um, Reaganite. Uh, in, in yeah, and not, not the good aspects of Reagan either. I mean, sure, yeah. um, and what did Trump liberate us from? I, I, I don't really know that. Um, I, so that I don't know that there, that there were all that many people that were wanting to say the things that we were saying. 
uh, there are some people that got that things needed to change and now have more or less accepted that in a sincere way um, and are kind of working toward that. Um, there are also a lot of people, I guess, that are trying to take. So I, I think Michael Brendan Doherty and, and Ross Douthat have kind of made this point about how Trumpism could kind of easily dissipate into kind of Republican politics as usual, plus being mean. Uh, and that, the, that the, you know, the thing that was worth emulating about Trump is that he was a personally unpleasant man, <laughs> not any of the other stuff. Uh, and, and I guess I would say it's the other stuff, uh, or at least the promise of the other stuff, that's the important thing. Yeah. So the other stuff, just to be clear, just, just give us what the other stuff is. So you said breaking with the neocon consensus in the Republican Party and, and uh, uh, saying that the Iraq war was this dreadful tragedy and, and error. Uh, uh, by a conservative, by a Republican government. Um, what else is on the list? I, I think I can guess, but in your um, I'd put immigration restriction up there. I'd put the, um, one of the common gripes is the degree to which social conservatives have taken a backseat in the Republican coalition. Um, another one would be trade protectionism. Yeah. Um, it, it, those would be the big ones. It would be war, trade protection, immigration restriction, and social conservatism. So I, I have a, a question about that. And this is interesting. It's like Matt Iglesias has talked about the billion Americans. And there's this sort of discussion about actually using the immigration of in the U.S. to promote uh, an America first policy. What can, I mean? What of that? Do we have enough people? And what do we do with the people we have? That's my question. Yeah, um, I uh, I don't think too much of Matt Iglesias' idea. I mean, I think it's sort of a recipe for chaos. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, we don't have the social structure for it. I mean, that's that. I mean, that's the issue. I mean, right. We start with you we know, don't have much of a social structure for Americans anymore. Yeah. Either. No, no, that's <laughs> absolutely. And and there are these sort of uh, there are these secular, um, and it's not secular in the sense of non-religious, but secular in terms of like long-term um, questions about what are all these people going to be doing in the future. There, there are um, there. You've got automation happening at the same time, yeah. Um, and then a lot of people being reduced to service work that's going to also get automated. And, and you know, the, the, uh, Tucker talks about this a lot that the most common job in America is being a truck driver, and th there's no reason why truck yeah. drivers are going to need to exist. In no, absolutely. I, mean, I, I, I did some work, uh, I did some lobbying for Uber and not Uber per se, but like I did some lobbying for Tesla and Uber on sort of automation and you realize that truck driving which is like a, a, a really good job for a lot of people was going to go away mm -hmm. in fact that was the goal so, uh, have you seen oliver's interview about truck driving no no but I was yeah yeah that's amazing it. I'm the yeah, yeah. 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 The is oliver bateman is a good friend uh, he's. Uh, we both uh, worked on a union rag called the Payday Report in the past. He's the host of What's Left, and uh, a brilliant guy who, who writes about anything from truck driving to uh, pro wrestling, and he's written in the American Conservative about pro wrestling. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. Like these are the people; these are real breadwinners in these rural communities. Yeah, and. Um... 
you know, what, what are all these people going to do in the future? And um, I think immigration restrictionism is kind of the most sane and, and really uh, the most uh, little d democratic way of dealing with that problem. Um, the, you can't just like destroy the middle class and, and, you know, basically give nobody a say in the matter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're eventually going to have some say in the matter. Uh, it, it, I, I would rather that be sort of managed. Uh, the, yeah, the, the thing that made me an immigration restrictionist is just really realizing how uh, intense the consensus on both sides of it was, uh, especially at the upper echelon of the Republican Party. Uh, it, the, 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 the bigger, uh, it, and there's also kind of the, the thing that's pushing the Republican Party in a restrictionist direction is all of these downscale voters are streaming into it, and they're the ones that are most threatened. Are the ones that are going to be competing for a lot of these jobs, and so uh, I think that pressure is going to make the Republican Party more restrictionist. So I think a lot of our listeners will, um, uh, on the left, will be hearing this and, and hearing you talk about um, immigration and, and social conservatism, and will feel kind of alarmed. And and one thing I always say is that in um, kind of liberal and left discourse today often seems like if somebody is socially conservative and economically uh, conservative then they're a normal conservative if they are socially conservative and economically um, uh, kind of left or populist then they're a dangerous fascist exactly it's like it's like some sort of weird combination of ideas that make people uncomfortable i and it's like why is one fascism and one is like we need to compromise with well so th this is this easily bleeds into our main topic for the day um which is uh you know i, I recently i found myself and I, i'm maybe i'm betraying some things here uh i found myself wanting to restrain the big spending impulses of some of these new right guys i i don't i think they're giving the whole game away so who are you thinking of him? Uh, and what, this is just in conversations with them privately. I mean, what I'll say is that a lot more staffers on the Hill think like me than think like Paul Ryan, and that's a very significant change. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a, th there's a danger there, too. And uh, the, the danger is that there's, you know, not all spending is actually good. Um, and especially, um, so, so what I'm thinking of, and how to kind of square this circle of a, of a party that's willing to spend, but then also just not getting outbid by Democrats. You, you have to, because if you, uh, you'll get outbid every time with a bigger budget, um, it, it, you know, th th that's just how it's going to work. And uh, one issue we've been talking about this on is, is uh, childcare. And uh, the, I, I think the way to square this circle is basically, you know, the, the, the topic that a lot of lefties are talking about these days, the PMC. And uh, w where do they come from? And, and there's, uh, these are the people that the Democratic Party is actually designed to serve. And uh, Absolutely. The, Matt, Matt Stoller has, has written about this very extensively, actually. Right. And so yeah. you can see this in every possible issue. Like there was the fight about the Endless Frontier Act about a week ago. And uh, you notice it bumps up the funding for the National Science Foundation by, by I think, $12, million, $12 billion dollars. 
and $8 billion of that goes to education rather than research itself. And so who's that about paying off? It's about paying off this kind of army of, you know, middle management kind of teacher types. And uh, child paid, or universal childcare is also kind of like that. Uh, my, uh, instead of giving parents more, more to spend to kind of figure it out, um, and, you know, with demand rising as more parents are willing to pay for that, um, instead what we get is, is government childcare. Yeah. So interestingly enough, in Canada, they have a COVID relief fund for parents. Because a lot of daycares are shut down, they have an opportunity. If you have to cut your hours by 50%, you can get a certain amount of money. You still work, which is great. You know, it's like a welfare of work, but like people who are already working. So it works very well for people who are like freelancers, right? Mm -hmm. Or or people who work for themselves or, or work in an office job they can extend locally. It allows them to raise their families for like a minimal charge, actually. Like there's no like administrative charge. It's, it's very good, actually. Now that's a COVID relief fund, but it would make sense in the States. You want people to work 20 hours a week and raise their kids. That's not a bad bad deal, actually. Yeah, and um, I, I guess when I talk to, you know, new righty people that are kind of cast, casting around no. a reason to dislike Joe Biden's latest spending bill, yeah. um, it, I, I have to tell them, like, no, it's not actually that we don't want women working. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sympathetic <laughs> to, to it as, as, like, a goal, um, but... We want everyone working to an extent like i mean that's the thing is like we like i think the left and right thing is and the left is very bad about this and i'm sorry to interrupt but it's just like i have very strong i have twins so twin babies so i have strong feelings about this right now and i know james has kids and it's very important to him as well it's that the idea is like you want strong families so that you have a strong society Exactly. That's not yeah. controversial. Uh, the, the, the way the way I put it is that I think these are the two blind spots that the layer that the the right is stronger on uh, what I'd call decommodified experience. It, mm -hmm. It's stronger on the idea of community, on the idea of uh, a family, on, on the idea of kind of identity beyond right. what can be um, uh, you know what can be commodified. Um, but it, it is, um, and you compare that to uh, to the the left, and uh, you know you've got sl these slogans like um, uh, wages for housework, uh, uh, defense of sex work, uh, abolish the family. I appreciate that these are all nuanced arguments and debates, but ultimately it kind of builds up as a picture where um, actually there's a sort of weak view on um, on on decommodified experience. However, the right will never criticize the market, which is the engine of that commodification. Right. So there's there's almost a kind of um, way in which uh, the, the two uh, sides talk at uh, cross purposes. I, and, uh, I think that's intentional. Neither's quite right. able to, one's got the solution and one's got the ambition, but uh, it, it can't come together. Uh, I, I mean, would you accept that as a criticism of, um, of your old boss Tucker Carlson or, or or Josh Hawley, who I assume you you mean when you talk about a kind of new right direction in the Republican Party that as much as they 
often sound more convincing than most leftists on um, economic populism, that fundamentally the 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 critique of the the market isn't there for them and isn't there for you. Um, I, I suppose it's what it, it depends on what you mean by a critique of the market. Um, neither of those guys are are hostile to like all private economic activity. Um, and you could even point to ways. I mean, at this point, I'm so upset with big tech. I, I'm just ready to go full antitrust. But uh, no, please do. <laughs> we, we ran a piece about it a couple of days ago. And, I know. I read it. It was great. But, uh, <laughs> the, um, so, and I do think Hawley um, has, he's even introduced bills. Um, they, they don't, uh, I guess, strike at the root of, of modern capitalism, I suppose. Um, and, and, and neither does a lot of the things that Tucker says, but Tucker's also a pretty, pretty trenchant critic yeah. of a lot of companies in specific. And, and, you know, even guys like, uh, you know, the, the, there was a very controversial, it's, it seemed like it was, uh, you know, putting too much of the right sturdy laundry on display when he did that segment about Paul Singer and, and the, um, the, I guess it was Bass Pro Shops or whatever it was, Dick's yeah. Goods, something like that. Um, Paul Singer, I, I'm not the biggest fan of that guy. Um, but, you know, I, you're right in the sense that this hasn't, except in places like American Affairs, developed into like a really thoroughgoing critique with, with a lot of kind of policy meat on the bones. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think we'll get there. Um, the, the one thing uh, other writers, including Attack, have, have written about this, one of the things that's kind of failed to materialize, and there, there are probably reasons for that, is why is there no sort of heritage foundation for Trumpism and uh, yeah. a real sort of policy brain? Um, and the, the phrase that Orrin Cass likes to use is, is the binders on bookshelves that, that you can pull out and, and, and get your stuff from. And I kind of think the reason for that is, um, or, you know, so if we're going to have that, where's it going to come from? Mm-hmm. Uh, who's who's going to be persuaded to spend like that? And I think the answer kind of has to be the industries that stand to gain from trade protection. Yeah. Um, the and and this kind of harkens back to uh, a, an older kind of right wing politics, namely the John Birch Society, which was famously a project of the National Association of Manufacturers. Right. Um, it, it was uh, it, you know the the best uh, grassroots right wing uh, group in the country and and that's why CIA man Bill Buckley uh, had had to had to take him out. So I think a lot of our. Um, left-wing listeners will kind of have a view of politics where there's a hell of a lot of money and heft on the right. Uh, the Koch brothers um, are, you know, channeling all this, uh, well, the, the surviving one is channeling all this money into anti-regulation campaigns, uh, anti-climate change um, uh, action, uh, convincing people to, um, as it were, vote against their interests, the Mercers are there, the Heritage Foundation, Murdoch Media. There's an idea that right-wing policies are paid for, while left-wing policies or left-wing changes in culture are kind of 
fought tooth and nail by social movements and reluctantly capitalist society concedes progressive um, uh, uh, measures. You're, um, you're running a, you've been running a series of articles in, uh, in the American Conservative, um, which gives a very different picture. Uh, and it focuses on the nonprofit sector, uh, NGOs, um, this kind of whole sort of layer uh, in, uh, in American culture in particular, whereby what we think of as um, policies of the left are being promoted in a very structurally similar way to policies of the right. Could you explain how you see that kind of non-profit function? Uh, I'd actually say they're more sophisticated than the right. Uh, so, so, so what prompted this was uh, the sort of the realization that Citizens United may not be working for us. And I, when I say for us, I mean in a very sort of self-interested, is it good for our faction sort of sense. Uh, you know, th this was this... Um, historic Supreme Court ruling. It was a conservative activist at the center of it, and it opened the floodgates for a lot of outside spending. And uh, what was the outcome of that? Uh, I think we're now like 10 years down the line, something like that. And uh, who comes out the winner? And I think uh, it's pretty incontrovertible that the left has won in, in terms of, and, and on a couple of different dimensions. Um, one, it's there's more money in it. Um, Two, they know how to use the new rules a lot more effectively than the right does. And three, it's it, it, there's just a lot more, they work together in a lot better of a way. And uh, I'll, I'll explain what I mean. So uh, the, the right as a political movement is a lot more decentralized than the Democratic Party. I guess I shouldn't say the left. Uh, it, it's, it's a lot, uh, uh, the right has a lot of kind of fiefdoms, and, uh, you know, you, you could even go back to the days of like Phyllis Schlafly when the, the currency of the conservative movement was lists. Um, the, the person who had the longest list is the winner. And, and, and that's still um, that still pretty much holds today. I mean, every conservative organization makes money by like selling their lists and, you know, the trading of that sort of thing. That, that's and it, it works to the left, too, though. They, they've, uh, so what you have is a picture of a bunch of petty fiefdoms and. Uh, on, on uh, the Democratic side, though, what they've taken this new set of rules to do is build this enormous and very disciplined uh, political machine. And uh, uh, th there are so many pieces of it. I, I mean, you, you could uh, to uh, maybe just to sketch out the outlines of it. What I'd say is you have the big foundations, the, the historic ones, you know, um, uh, Rockefeller, Ford, Carnegie, uh, these guys. You have um, the kind of the, the money clearing organizations. The most important one is Arabella. And then you have a couple of like historic uh, union affiliated ones. You've got like Amalgamated Bank. Let me just tell maybe the story of the, of the one piece that I wrote for the series, yeah. uh, because it kind of illustrates how one of these uh, money clearing houses can really work and kind of increase your, uh, your return on investment, I guess. Um, and it's the story of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. And uh, I, I had been working on this sort of, uh, you know, I, I had known that it was a big thing in Virginia, that they were going to build um, a natural gas pipeline that would get the gas from uh, the Appalachians, from North Carolina to Pennsylvania, take it out through southern Virginia and export it through Norfolk. And uh, the and then I, I knew this was just percolating in the news uh, the last couple of years, the uh, that there was this big effort to stop it. 
And uh, we even knew who the billionaire was who was like buying the state legislature. And uh, his name was Michael Bills. He used to run the UVA endowment. And uh, he, so, I mean, I knew about this guy. He was a big bet noir of, um, of conservatives yeah. in the state. And uh, this was basically, though, it was a war. This makes me feel very comfortable, actually, this discussion. So go ahead. It's, it's a really fascinating story. You, you, you can kind of see uh, it's a great microcosm on how of how you all these different pieces fit together. Um, and the, uh, so the, the enemy at that time was Dominion Power. And Dominion Power is, is the electricity monopoly in the state of Virginia. Um, and it's, it's a union company. It's uh, been around for a very long time. And uh, the, the big campaign uh, among progressives was, we've got to stop Dominion's influence in the state house. And so Michael Bills adopts the same, um, the same strategy that Paul Singer used to get the Republican Party in New York City behind gay marriage. So that's another story. Um, he basically said, if you're a, a state, legislature, state legislator in Virginia and you take money from Dominion Power, I'll replace it. And uh, so that's kind of part one of, of the thing. And uh, part two would be all the activist groups, many of which are funded through the four funds that Arabella manages. And then um, on another level, you have the Virginia Mercury, which is a, a sort of uh, stand-up uh, um, grassroots uh, media company. And the guy who founded it was previously a pro-pipeline guy. He went from being an energy reporter to an environmental reporter. And uh, so, so he, he becomes the editor-in-chief of the Virginia Mercury. That's funded through Arabella. And that becomes kind of, um, I, they didn't like that I described it as an environmentalist publication. I got an email from SD Knickerbocker about that. And uh, <laughs> we, uh, th this is all happening. And uh, lo and behold, so basically, I'm sorry, we've got, uh, this might even be Joe Biden's motorcade going on. <laughs> are, you on are you on 16th Street? Is uh, 17th Street, right there. I it's knew it. I, 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 Square. Hear it. I lived um, there for long enough that I know. <laughs> yeah. So um, basically what happens is the activists win. They, they run out the clock in the state legislature. And, and so the, the project becomes too costly. Dominion is in too deep. And they, Dominion decides we're going to drop the whole thing. And so um, the, here this was heralded as a great moment for environmental justice. The people the people stood up and they said no yeah. to the evil environment destroying pipeline. Lo and behold, about a week later, what do we find out? The Wall Street Journal reports that for, I think the sale was like uh, $8.9 billion, uh, that Warren Buffett has bought the natural gas operation <laughs> of Dominion Power. This was one big, I mean, it looks yeah. an awful lot like one truck. <laughs> Like a, like a big short bed, you know, you're you're putting them, you know, in, in a situation where they're going to be in trouble. Yeah. And oh. so uh, after all of this, what do we have? We have uh, a public utilities uh, assets are being sold off. A uh, The management of it is, is going from union to non-union. Um, a big infrastructure project in the state of Virginia has died. Uh, and all of that uh, natural gas exporting is now going through Maryland. It, it's just like, it's a stupid thing. And, and uh, you know, we're supposed to pretend like it was, you know, this great moment of democracy or something, you know, the, the people power. Uh, and it was nothing of the sort. Uh, it, it, it was, uh, you know, Warren Buffett managed to get rid of the papers uh, before the sale happened. But um, yeah, and actually, so that's a, a little interesting detail. Um, uh, Warren Buffett sells that newspaper company to somebody else, but then restructures the debt. So he's still the sole creditor of, of all of those newspapers. 
anyway, um, so it, it's that's a good example. So they're they're using uh, this multi-leveled thing from media to activism to state legislatures. Um, and it's like a lot of the money is running through Arabella. And so if you're Warren Buffett or, you know, just uh, um, just some sort of progressive billionaire who cares about green stuff, um, you know, you, you give your money to them, they're going to deploy it as part of a unified strategy. And basically nobody here is the wiser because none of it, because it's all okay. Uh, and I would venture to say that this is basically how most progressive activism works. Uh, and and that, that may be cynical, um, but, but I, I think it's the case. Yeah, so, I, I mean, a lot of us uh, kind of watched um, despondently as uh, Bernie Sanders, we, we don't really need to get into it, but, you know, I, I think he was screwed over by the, by the DNC. Uh, and, and overnight, um, kind of Bernie Sanders platforms, Bernie Sanders supporters immediately swung round to um, supporting Joe Biden and, and the establishment Democrats. And we've spoken about this on the show many times. Um, it's not an uncommon opinion that um, this is a sort of um, a, a pattern where the left, uh, in the I guess the European sense of the term, the, the economic left, gets blackmailed into supporting um, the the Whig progressive side of mm. the capitalist class. But what you're describing is actually, that, that's not an unfamiliar story. What you're describing is something kind of more profound, whereby um, a lot of what we think of as kind of examples of resurgences in left activism and left movements over the last five, six years, actually... Um, are not simply a, a kind of oh a left move, movement has emerged and has now been co-opted by a neoliberal party. Uh, actually, what you're describing is a situation whereby um, a certain kind of um, faction of the elite has chosen to support left-wing causes as okay. a kind of as a kind of rebranding. Why? Why have they done this? They create them. Um... I guess they need. Um, I, I mean, there, there's the there's the Amy Therese explanation, right? That um, <laughs> they, and I, I don't mean that. She's, she's um, That's the, great. The, uh, it's sort of how um, it, it's hipster marketing for the DNC, uh, and, and I think there's probably something to that. Um, I, I the the a little bit more maybe um, charged uh, discussion here would be the um, the protests and rioting last year um, and, you know, looking at who funded that, it, it looks like the Ford Foundation was giving a ton of money to some of like the harder edge BLM. You're, you're yeah. saying that the Ford Foundation has tried to upend governments for their own political and business needs. That's very controversial. It's not controversial on the left. If you're talking about foreign governments, right? But it yeah. is controversial to talk about it domestically. The Ford That's Foundation has, has historically been a CIA cutout, right? And absolutely, to, everybody who's involved in South America. Some, um, to, to give some examples here, I mean, th this would be kind of my like explanation of the historical pattern that in the 1960s, when you had a very powerful left, you had a very powerful union movement and had very unpredictable uh, and often in the neutral sense of the term terroristic um, left 
radical social movements, um, institutions like the Ford Foundation, uh, in their words, sought to create a world safe for capitalism by funding their preferred sort of um, versions of these left new left movements. Right. Uh, to so basically, uh, the CIA tried to create. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so to put to put the thumb in the in the scale for the people who stood for a kind of proto identity politics, for the people who stood for um, equalities as opposed to any kind of radical utopian change, and you know, kind of you know, killed those more unpredictable uh, radical movements by supporting a, a liberal version. Of them, uh, uh, liberal in the sense of integrated and 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 paid up and capitalist uh, version. So you know that that is clearly what was going on in the in the sixties. That that faced with the threat of the left, um, these institutions backed a tame version of it, and that and that is the kind of long story of equal of of the whole kind of discourse of equalities well, yeah. so if, if i make a criticism of that then yeah um, the the thing that that i would say is um you know did you see that letter in the nation about uh a, a letter from the old new left to the new new left <laughs> yes yeah. uh, yes and, absolutely and, and, yeah, I, have, I have friends who signed that actually so yeah and, and it was basically saying don't you dare think about not voting for joe biden it is it's hard to overstate the degree to which like, it wasn't a co-optation no. it, was, it was something willing uh, on the part of these people yeah now they're the ones signing that letter yeah uh, yeah, yeah oh totally totally yeah. I mean, and you can see you know there are other kind of funnier examples like susan yeah. rosenberg working for blm's payment processor i mean yeah. she's a former weather underground terrorist and yeah like, and uh, you know the, the the other example of this kind of thing is you know i i saw a bit of news today that Angela Davis is now fighting over board seats at the MoMA. It's not been a good look. Uh, for yeah, I, mean, of this I would like to be on the board. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I think, you know, the, the, the it can't be overstated, that, like, the degree to which these people, like, are the establishment. I mean, the piece you published by uh, uh, Shane Devine kind of shows remarkable figures about how since 2014 um, there's been a kind of switch around whereby what we call, you know, dark money, this money that doesn't have to be um, declared by political campaigns from non-profits, that it's gone from being a right-wing thing to being a uh, progressive Democrat kind of thing. Uh, liberal kind of thing. Like, wh- what's it? What's in it for them now? Why are these um, uh, apparently left movements being being funded by these bodies? Why is that? Um, why is that that wealthy class seeing this as the aesthetics it wants to support, or this is so the policy? This, this is an area in which it's so important to like the threat of withdrawal of support is so important. Um, it, and the right kind of figured that, like, Trump was that for the right. Yeah. Democrats are a lot more loyal. Um, so imagine a situation where, David, you have got a lot of money. And uh, I say, I'm going to support you no matter what. And James says, I don't know. I'm not going to support you. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, leaving my options open. Uh, who are you going to get your money? What would literally happen? 
This happens every day. Uh, of course, uh, if, if Republicans are committed to this kind of free market magma, irrespective of how much money comes their way, yeah, uh, then, then why would you give them money? You're saying the billionaire class doesn't need to bribe the Republicans, but it needs to bribe the Democrats. Do, do I understand you right? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that accounts for a lot of it, not all of it, but I think it does account for it. Like the basic game theory there. I actually think that that the um, I think that the if the billionaire class just gave the Republicans as they exist today and in the last twenty or thirty years, I think that they would fail, not because the Democrats are effective, but because the Democrats are effective in shielding what they're doing, and I think that that's the issue. Republicans were very good at this for about twenty to thirty years. I would say for Reagan on. They, 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 you know, they, they had a populist message. It, it, it sold. You know, I'm from rural Pennsylvania. I get it. Uh, but I think that the Democrats took that mantle on in weird ways, where they're like, you don't know, actually, we're like, we are more conservative about spending. We're more conservative about this. I, I, the Democrats are such a like a weird leviathan of ideas that it's. It's interesting is that you actually, by giving to them, you're like, they'll find someone woke to come up with a reason while, why they're going to cut your, your, your funding for your school. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and, and, you know, there are uh, a lot of this stuff, I think, is epi epiphenomenal to what yeah. I described. Epiphenomenal is the, is there's, the word, um, there's also the piece of this, that, like, you know, your average, uh, you know, Wall Street billionaire probably is just more progressive, and certainly in their social. Yeah, background. they just they just the want, they want an adult in school to be fine. You right, know? Um, and and you know, if that requires their kids doing like the most insane critical race theory yeah. struggle sessions, you know, whatever gets them into Princeton, yeah. you, you can just look at the California model, yeah. right? Um, the California model shows what you know how the rich can very easily secede from a society and not doesn't matter. Yeah. like social disorder yeah. or whatever, or, you know, reducing wages yeah. for, for workers, um, you know, they're, they're going to be fine in Palo Alto while, yeah. uh, you know, L.A. Uh, is, you know, continues yeah. to deteriorate. I mean, even San Francisco, it's a mess. You know, it's like it's the richest city in the world and like it's a mess. Yeah. In the second part of this popular show episode with Arthur Bloom from the American Conservative, we continue debating the role of non-profits in progressivism and turn to the example of Black Lives Matter. But to get that, you're going to need to subscribe at patreon.com forward slash the popular pod.